so immediately this thing started floating me toward the ship. And we just kind of off the ground a little bit, and that's why we didn't have no trouble getting there. And when we got to the stairway, I remember thinking, now where's all these lights come from? Now why that thought, you know, I should have been wondering where the heck am I going? Tonight in the studio, alien abduction legend and author Calvin Parker joins me to tell his story. In 1973, Calvin and his friend Charles Hickson were fishing along the Pascagoula River when both men were abducted by alien creatures and subjected to an examination so terrifying they thought they were going to die. I am Cameron Brower. Please subscribe and like this podcast. It takes just a few seconds and it makes it so much easier for others to find the show. Tonight, Calvin Parker... The book is Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter, My Story. That and more coming up next on My Alien Life. I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. Yet, I ask you, is not an alien force already among us? My Alien Life is recorded live from atop the Northern Rocky Mountains and is available on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and everywhere fine podcasts are found. My website is at www.myalienlifepodcast.com. There you will find my email address, all previously recorded shows, and more. I am Cameron Brower. This is My Alien Life, and the podcast starts right now. Calvin Parker is the author of Pascagoula, The Closest Encounter. My story, sir, your abduction was 46 years ago. Why did it take so long for you to write this book that I think everybody in America was waiting for? Well, I really didn't even want to write it when I wrote it. I was kind of pushed into it. My wife and, uh, of course, Philip Mantle, the publisher of the book, and this came up. What happened, I, I was happy just not talking about anything concerning this. And I went to a wake one night of a friend that passed away. While I was at the wake, I made a mistake and signed a register. Well, some people from out of town uh, seen my signature on the register and they came up while we was at the funeral home and started asking questions. And that's like I told them, this is not a good time to talk about this. I'm here for this man's family, and they don't want to hear this bull. So I told my wife, I said, the best thing we could do, we just slip out of here and go. And on the way home, she said, well, why don't you write a book? I said, well, you know, why not? I do not have an education. I can't spell my own name, much less write a book. And what I was doing was just really putting her off. I said, so, well, uh, if I find a ghost rider, I'll ride a bull. But I knew I would never hunt a ghost rider. 
So that kind of satisfied her for the day. She said, well, you really need to think about writing a book. Well, just out of the clear, and I guess it uh, was just good karma that the next day, Philip Mantle, he's got a little publishing company out of uh, UK. He called completely on a different subject in this. He called to ask me some questions about Charles Hickson books, uh, book that he had wrote. And of course, I wasn't going to tell him anything because I didn't want nothing to do with all this. And I said, look, Philip, let me tell you what I know now. I don't want to talk about this because every time I do, the media gets a hold of it. They change my story. Nothing's never the same when it gets printed. So I just really don't want to talk about this. He said, oh, well, why don't you write your own book? That'll be your legacy. And nobody will be able to change it. Well, actually, that did sound pretty good to me. And I said, well, let me, let me think about this. So in the process of thinking about it, I said, well, I'll never accept another call from him. I'll screen my calls. And that way I won't be put on the spot. Well, sure enough, about a week later, he called again. And uh, I screamed my calls and I told him I really wasn't. I'd have to think some more about it. But he accidentally caught me out fishing one day when he called and I answered my phone. And the more he talked to me, the better this sounded. So that's when I decided to do the book. Uh, I came back home. I told my wife, I said, I think I'm going to write this book. I, said, I told him I didn't have the education to write a book or anything. He said he would be glad to uh, put me in the right direction on the book. I said, one thing, Philip, I do not uh, want this book edited in any way. I don't want any words, if I misspell a word, I want to leave it misspelled. Mispunch away the sentence, I want to leave it like that. I want this book in my words. I do not want nothing edited. And you know what really shocked me that uh, he didn't edit it. So I went ahead and got started on the book. He told me, he said, well, look, he said, I know this is probably going to take you two or three years to do. And, uh, you know, just take your time and we'll finish it. Well, in the meantime, he sent me a thing like chapter one should be introducing yourself and chapter two, how you met Charlie, chapter three, tell the story. And he just kind of sent me an outline to go by because I didn't know anything about a book. So I got started. I told my wife, I said, I'm going to my room. I'm locking my door. And if I can read a book in two weeks, I can dang sure write this book in two <laughs> weeks. And that was just the way that I felt about it. So I went to my room. I said, about once a day, bring me a little something to drink in here, something to eat. But do not disturb me. My phone's outside. It's turned off. I don't want to talk to nobody. I don't want any kind of talk. So I went out and bought me a new computer because I really didn't even have one. I don't even have a, a phone that you can 
that's got internet service on it. So I sat in my room and I got started. Well, as I finished the chapter, I just sent it to Philip. Well, in the meantime, he was doing research. He was pulling back out all the uh, newspaper clippings, all the information he could on this story. And he's done a really good job putting all this together. So a couple of weeks, I walked out of the room. I emailed Philip. I said, here's the first cut of it. And uh, like I said, do not edit my book. He said, I'm not. He said, that's the deal we have. And I have to say one thing. The man has been a blessing. He has stood strictly by his word. I mean, there's times that I look through the book and I wish he had edited it. But then it wouldn't be in my words. I'm a South Mississippi redneck through and through, and uh, I don't have much education at all. And that's just me. And, and I just wanted people to accept me for who I was because I went 45 years that I didn't. Well, actually, we had planned when I sent that in. This was in uh, July. And he said, well, we're going to wait till September and go ahead and put, publish the book and put it out on the market. But somehow it got leaked a little bit. And I mean, people went wild over it. And that really shocked me. I didn't think people would even remember it after 45 years. So it hit the market in July, and by popular demand, we had to bring the book back on the market. We was going to wait till September, but when the little hint of it hit in July, I mean, it spread. And, you know, there's uh, social media and all now. When something gets out, it's out, and there's no bringing it back. So but after that, when you when you initially spoke to Philip, how long did it take from that phone call until you saw that finished product uh, available? About about three months for the finished project, and uh, I was actually, you know, through with mine in a couple of weeks. But he had to put the book together. He had to get all his uh, homework done and, and group it up. And like I say, while I worked on my little story. He was working on everything that went with it. And believe it or not, I hadn't had any regrets. The only thing in the book that I seen that was edited, and it could have been misspelled on my part, at the end I was talking about uh, eating a bologna sandwich while I was fishing, and he put in there a blondie sandwich. Now, <laughs> what the heck a blondie sandwich is, I don't know. But, uh, I have heard of these Blondie and Dagwood sandwiches, but that was the only word I've seen that was edited in the book. And I, I'm really proud of it. Uh, you know, it got the story out. Of course, it did one thing that's put a, more media attention on me than uh, I really wanted. And actually, I've been really, really busy since the books came out. I've been, you know, doing a lot of these uh podcast i've been public speaking been going to conferences and working on several different things i can't talk about right now but uh you know it's just been a lot going on and i finally got a little break i went to a conference in uh eureka springs arkansas 
And when we got back, I didn't have nothing scheduled for probably three or four weeks there. And I said, I'm taking a break. I'm not answering my phone. I'm not answering any email. Of course I did. But uh, when I got back, I just needed this little break. So I've been down working on my houseboat and doing a little bit of fishing. So did you enjoy the process of putting together the book, and are, are you enjoying um, promoting that right now? Well, I can't say that I really enjoy it because it takes up so much time. But what I am enjoying is uh, meeting the people. Like, for instance, when the book came out, I've never talked about this story here in my hometown. And I actually live and still live right here close to Pascagoula. And the city of Pascagoula put on a book signing. And I went to that. And you wouldn't believe the turnout that they had. I just couldn't believe it. And I'm not really a public speaker, but at one time I wanted to be a Baptist preacher. So, you know, I just took lessons from that and added it to my little public speaking thing here. And it's been great. I've met a lot of good people. I've had a good response. Uh, It's just been a great way to go, and I've enjoyed it. So prior to the actual... um uh, two-week period where you sat down and wrote the book. Had you ever recorded or written anything um, in the 40 years uh, prior to that? Oh, no, sir. Uh, you know, other than what, the news media would catch me and they'd want to interview. And I'd give one or two of them a little interview or just give them a taste. But then when it came out, it was so mixed up and confused, I didn't even know what I said. And I said, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to do this anymore. You talking about Donald Trump hating the fake fake news, buddy, I got more share of it than he ever has. Right. So anyhow, I just go with it now. I take it and go and I don't let things bother me. And there's two reasons behind this. One is Philip Mantle in the UK, the publisher. He has been so good to me, and, uh, you know, it's just a lot of trust between he and I on this book. And I don't, I wouldn't have done it for anybody else, but he just had a smooth way of talking. He should have been a politician. So my he, guest, my guest last week, I, there, there's a gentleman named uh, um, William Pullen, who's a, who's a UFO researcher, who said that your case that happened in 1973 was one of those events in the early 70s that really started a trend in abduction cases or whereas people were starting to um, tell their stories that had been abducted. Had you ever heard of anyone being abducted prior to your own? No, sir, I hadn't. And I wouldn't have never realized, not in my life would I have ever thought about uh, aliens or alien abductions or had I ever heard of them. The closest thing I heard of, I remember sitting around a no black and white TV and watching the Apollo missions and stuff come back. And when they land, you know, they quarantined the astronauts in there away from their family for two weeks. That's the closest thing I ever seen to any flying saucers. 
so that was that was about 46 years ago and um i remember uh hearing about it when i was when i was a kid you know i was born in 1965 and um and i told this story a couple of times but uh we had a radio station that just i i think it was maybe over a period of few of a few months at 7 a.m they had kind of a ufo story um every morning and for two or three days i think they had uh, your story and they had uh, told of a travis walton story now Two things that I remember, and these this was my first exposure to uh, UFOs and aliens, and the first thing that I can remember was, one, um, listening to uh, the story about Travis Walton and the beam of light coming out of the, the saucer or the uh, craft or whatever it was. And then the other one was the description that was on the radio of, that you had of, uh, of what these beings looked like. And I could tell you that I remember hearing about your description of what these beings look like. And that stuck with me <laughs> this, this whole time. I mean, I, I remember it just scared me to death when, when they described what the hands looked like. Yeah, they had a, now I called them when this first happened, just trying to get a reference. So, well, uh, people would understand, you know, what little bit I did talk about it, like a crab, like hands, but it was more or less like, you know, mittens on their hands. And these things, I don't play, I don't think they had any kind, I think they was more robotic than anything, except for the one inside the ship that did the examination. Uh, these just acted like uh, mechanicals. You know, you could watch something move and tell that it's not thinking for itself, and it's just commanded to move this way. And that's that's what I really think they were was robotic beings. So this occurred on October eleventh, nineteen seventy three. And if you would, I'd like you to go through the story. Um, what time of day were were you out with with your uh, partner Charles Hickson? Well, you know, we never really got a real factual time on this deal because we didn't wear watches. We was working in a shipyard, and this was my. Believe it or not, my first day to go to work, I was working in the oil field. I was engaged to get married in November. But in the oil field, I was working seven days a week, 16 hours a day. And I told um, what to be my future wife. I said, you know, I don't really see no future in a marriage with uh, me working that many hours. So I called. I knew of Charlie Hickson through my father, and I was raised around him and his children. And they all fished together, and we would, uh, they would take the kids with them. So Daddy told me to call Charlie up, that he was working at the shipyard in Pasquadula, and he might need some help. So I thought, well, you know, that might be a good idea, I know him. So I gave old Charlie a call. He said, yeah, come on down. And we will uh, drug test you tomorrow or, and uh, get you set up, and you can go to work the following day. Well, so I went down a day or so early, get out, got my physical, got my drug test, uh, made a deal with Charlie to rent a room from me for $50 a week. And this was my first day there to go to work was October 11th of 1973 and actually it was my last day of work October 11th of 1973 I, I remember telling somebody you know 
I got a physical, I got hard, I got fired all on the same day and run out of town. <laughs> so, and that's basically what happened. So that was my first day. We was working and we got off work, I guess around 530. And Charlie asked me, he said, look, for an October day, it's hot. And it was hot. We've been slinging a sledgehammer all day long. And um, he said, let's go fishing and wind down a little bit. And then we'll go home and eat, go to bed, and get up the next morning, and go back to work. So, you know, that sounds good, Charlie, but, uh, you know, I don't have any fishing equipment. He said, well, I have some at the house. Let's run by there and pick it up. And then I know a couple of places close right here. We just drive over and fish. So we did. We went and picked up the fishing equipment. And we drove to the old Shaw Peters shipyard. It had been out of business, I don't know how long, but for a while. And when we first got there, I noticed the uh, um, ground and all. You know, it looked like... Uh, a lot of trash and a lot of junk on it. And I seen a no trespassing sign. I said, Charlie, why in the world don't they clean this place up or something? He said, well, really, that's not them. What happens when the flood water comes in? It brings all this trash in. Then when it goes out, it just leaves it here. I said, look, fellow, there's a no trespassing sign here. Are we going to get in trouble for fishing? No, I come down here all the time. So I took him at his word. We parked up on the road, and it took probably 15 minutes to walk down. Now, what time of the day it was, I don't know, but it was just starting to get kind of dark. Uh, we walked down to the pier, and there was no log over there. We kind of drug it up and sat down on this log, and I was cast my spinning reel out. Now, we was on the east past Pagula River, and... I was on the west side of the east past Pagula and casting toward the east. And I was sitting there looking. I was studying this uh, big ship. Now, whether it was a Coast Guard cutter or a NOAA ship that checks the weather and all, that I don't know because I didn't pay that much attention to it. But in my mind, what was going through my mind at the time was, how does something made out of steel float? And that was what was on my mind. Then I noticed reflecting from my back all the way across the water was some blue lights. And I thought, well, you know, the laws up there about where my car is, because that's where these blue lights is coming from. And I bet they fixed the runners off for trespassing. So I stood up about that time Charlie stood up. And as we turned around, the blue lights turned into one of the brightest lights I've ever seen in my life. And I mean, it was bright. And before we knew it, there was three bulky looking creatures coming toward us. Now they stood probably five, five and a half foot tall. They didn't have a neck on their shoulders and they had kind of gray link, wrinkled skin. And like we had talked about earlier, they had the hands, the uh, claw like hands. So two of them got a hold of Charlie. One of them got a hold of myself. And I actually, I was thinking about uh, running, but it was so fast 
and there was nowhere to run. There was water in the front, water on each side of me with junk in the water. And I, it was so fast, it was just shocking. You know, you couldn't run. But when this thing reached out and grabbed my arm, I felt some, some kind of sting in my arm, which later on we found out while I was at the doctor's office, it was a uh, injection of some kind. So they had to inject me with something to uh, settle me down or kind of calm my nerves. And then immediately, I just kind of lost sight of Charlie. I was kind of dazed that for a minute. Now, when I say dazed, I could hear everything going on. I could see everything going on. And I could turn my head a little bit and roll my eyeballs. But the rest of my body wouldn't move. It was just kind of paralyzed. So immediately, this thing started floating me toward the ship. And we just kind of off the ground a little bit, and that's why we didn't have no trouble getting there. And when we got to the stairway, I remember thinking, now, where's all these lights come from? Now, why that thought, you know, I should have been wondering where the heck am I going? But why I even thought about the lights, because they were so bright. And I looked inside and I tried to see some light fixtures, you know, just directly in front of me. But the light was illuminating out of the walls, looked like it was painted in the walls. So I did notice that, one of the first things I noticed. This thing made a left turn and went just a little ways down the hallway and then he made a quick right turn. There was an examination table I guess I never really seen the table, but I felt it. He took me in and laid me on this table, laid me on my back at about a 16 degree angle. And I was looking straight up and I, I was sitting there with my eyes kind of looking at the ceiling because I didn't have much choice about that. And something about the size of a deck of cards came down and it stopped about a foot, a foot and a half from my head. And you could hear this thing clicking and it just circled my head and it clicked about four different times. Then it shot back up into the wall. Well, this big ugly creature, as I called him, he kind of backed up out of the way. And then I heard, uh, well, I can't really say I heard anything, but this female looking creature just more or less appeared there. And I know she had to come out of another room from somewhere. But uh, she just more or less appeared. And she reached down and she grabbed me by my cheek and kind of pinched my cheek. Well, somebody had asked me one time, did I feel any warmth or anything in her skin when she did that? No, I didn't. Uh, I didn't feel a thing. And another thing they asked was, there any odors? Well, Pagula has a pogey plant and all in it, so it's always odors there. So that smell would kind of drown out everything. You have dead fish, you know, that float up and all. So I wouldn't uh, smell any kind of different odors. Uh, but she pinched me by my cheek, and that wasn't too bad. But when she had her, put her hands kind of out in front of my face, and I noticed her two middle fingers was a little bit longer than what was on our hands. Now, she was more human 
than these robotic looking creatures. She grabbed me by the chin and she run her fingers down in my throat. And that little thing that hangs down in the back, she come up, tried to come up behind it. And I was choking and struggling. My nose started bleeding. And uh, all of a sudden, just telepathically, she says, we're not going to harm you. And I said, well, I was thinking, well, you really showing you not. I'm going to pull your damn head off when I get through with you, if I can. But that's what she she said. And it was just like her saying it. Well, she pulled her fingers out of my throat and made a little mumbling noise. And when she did that, the old big, ugly, robotic-looking creature, he came back over and grabbed me by my arm. Well, I felt another injection, so that kind of settled me down. Well, she just kind of backed up out of the way, and I more or less rolled my head where I could uh, kind of see her. You know, I had a little bit of movement there. I rolled my eyes and my head, and then she he just picked us up off the table, took us out to the riverbank, and he put me out. It's almost the same spot he picked me up in, except I was facing the river with my arms stretched. And uh, he was leaving, and I heard Charlie. Charlie was laying on the ground over by me. He said, son, son, you okay? And when he did, I just kind of came out of what I was into and turned around and looked, and these things was going back to the crowd. The big bright light went off, and you could see the little blue hazy light still then. And it picked up a little bit off the ground, and then it just more or less disappeared. So I was sitting there, and Charlie said, well, let's sit down and talk about this. I said, there's nothing to talk about, Charlie. I didn't see nothing. I didn't go through nothing. I'm going to get up in the morning and go to work. We didn't see nothing. He said, well, we got to tell somebody. He said, they could be invading us. She could be my butt. They are invading us right now. I said, let's not tell nobody, Charlie. People's going to think we're crazy. But actually, my initial thought was we live in a community where they build these ships for the military and all. And I thought maybe that was some kind of experimental crowd and two old redneck boys got out just having fun with it. Now, that was my initial thought, but that proved to be way wrong later on. So we sat on the bank. We talked just a few minutes. I said, let's not tell nobody. Well, he agreed with me. He said, we're not going to tell nobody. You're right. And we walked back up and got in the car. And we, when I, and when we got to the car, I looked on his side, and the windows were shattered on the passenger side, just shattered in place. They hadn't fell out. It didn't fall out till he opened the door to get in. And later on, I got to thinking, well, maybe the sound off the craft might have cracked them windows. And I went to get in the car and tried to crank it. They wouldn't crank. I sat there and wound on the starter. And actually, I figured the battery would have wound down, but the battery was stronger than ever. Finally got it cranked, and it was running real rough. We backed out. We started headed back toward all. 
college Vela apartments where we was living. And when we was driving by a store, now back then you didn't have cell phones or computers or anything like that. There was a pay phone on the wall. He said, pull up here, I need to use the phone. Well, I didn't think about it. I figured he was just going to call his wife and tell her we was fixing to come in or something. But then he said, I'm calling Keesler Air Force Base out of Biloxi. I thought, oh, no, don't do that. Please don't. He said, well, I've got to call and tell them something. So he called Keesler Air Force Base in Biloxi. And now I couldn't hear their side, but apparently they told him that they didn't handle anything like this anymore that uh, to call the local authorities, which would be the Jackson County Sheriff Department. So he hung the phone up and he come back in and he said, you got another dime? I said, no, we'd like not to found that one, Charlie. So we searched under the seats or between the seats and finally found some change. And he went up dropped a dime in and he called the Jackson County Sheriff's Department. And I could hear Charlie say, well, uh, I need to tell you something, but you got to promise me you're not going to laugh. And, you know, I could hear Charlie's part. Later on, I asked his detective if he laughed. He said, well, yeah, I laughed. But anyhow, Charlie called them and they had told him, look, y'all wait right there, do not move the car. So we did, we got in the car and we waited. We'll be there in a few minutes. And it was just shortly, I mean, real quickly, they got there. Well, the first thing they did was walk up on my side of the car. They looked in the car, looked, asked me for my driver's license, told me to step out of the car. And what they was doing, they gave me a sobriety test, alcohol sobriety test, I guess. You know, you follow their finger, they wave their fingers in front of you and you follow them with your eyeball. He said, now look, stand on your left foot, pick your other one up, lean your head back, touch your nose and count backwards and jump up and down. I said, man, I couldn't do that if I was sober, <laughs> much less if I'd been drinking. No, so. Don't even start that with me. But I did it, and I did a little sobriety test. Then I walked a little line. He said, you good to drive. You don't show any signs of drinking. Now, I don't know why they didn't pull Charlie out of the car and do the same to him. I guess because he wasn't driving. He said, look, I want you to follow us back to the sheriff's department. And uh, we need to talk to you a little bit up there. So they followed we did. We followed them back to the sheriff's department. And when I got there, they gave me a, one of them something you blow in. And I sat there and blew in that dang thing for five minutes, I guess, till I was give out. And of course, I didn't have any signs of alcohol. Now, believe me, if I had a, had a drink in there, I would have drank it that night. I would have. And, uh, they put us in separate rooms and interrogated us. Now, I don't know what they asked Charlie, but you know, they was just trying to get me to talk. And they said, well, what did you see? I said, I didn't see nothing. Uh, you know, nothing happened to me. 
I don't know why y'all even getting us and asking us something like this. He said, well, we got a call and here's the way that it's going. Now they was really nice. So they took Charlie out of the room, took me out and they put us all in a room together. Now this is where the secret tape come in and this is where they caught me. And I can't say caught me in a lie because I just didn't tell them. But they had a tape recorder hid in this drawer and they was listening to mine and Charlie's conversation. And I had mentioned one time on there, and I told Charlie, said, you know, I've never been that damn scared in my life. Felt like I slept on a rattlesnake. And uh, just talking like that, well, we had no idea there was a tape recorder in the, in this office. So they come in and got the tape recorder out. Now, we didn't see them get it out because by then, you know, we weren't paying much attention to what they was doing. Listen to it and walk back in there. Now, this is where what they call a secret tape come from. They walked back in and told us to go on home and they'd see us tomorrow. I said, okay. I said, I don't want anybody to know about why y'all got us in here or nothing like that. Oh, you don't have to worry about that. We're not the news media. We're here just to enforce the law. And by the way, if this is some kind of hoax, you're going to jail a long time. You know, they was trying to put the scare tactics on me. And I said, going to jail for what? I hadn't told y'all nothing. So uh, Charlie and I went and got in the car. We started on the way back home and uh, we got to ask Charlie, I, I am kind of concerned. I said, I've watched these Apollo missions. And when these astronauts came back down, they would quarantine them for two weeks from their family. And I said, I feel like we might be a danger to society right now because of, uh, because of the right, that. And I knew about radiation because my father worked for the Atomic Energy Commission. And they would study, had a badge on him, and he had to wear it every time he went to work and bring it home. So I knew a little bit about radiation, think, thinking it could be radiation on us too. So we got home, and Charlie said, well, don't worry about it. And, and I was concerned about it. When we got to the apartment, I went into my bedroom, and there was a bathroom in there. There was a gallon of bleach sitting on the back of the shower. I pulled all my clothes off. Now, back then, they weren't plastic bags or garbage bags or anything, but you had paper bags. And I remember I didn't really have no suitcase, so I bought my clothes there in paper bags. And I put all these clothes that I had on and my shoes, I put everything over in this one paper bag and I rolled it up and set it in there. I got in the shower and I poured a gallon of bleach over my head because I remember the bleach thing. My, my mother used to wash me in bleach. If we had got into poison ivy or something we shouldn't have been into. And I just really thought that uh, that would cure everything on me. So I poured this gallon of bleach on my head and rubbed it in, and it was really painful to your eyes and everything else. And I showered it off, 
And I got out and I put on some clean clothes. Now I didn't have too good a pair of other shoes, but uh, I had my work shoes on that I pulled off to throw away. And I, I had another pair of shoes and I put on some, put on clean clothes and all. And I carried this bag out to the dumpster and I throwed it in the dumpster, thinking that the uh, trash man would get it and haul it off, put it in the landfill. So the next day we got up, Charlie was up when I got up. Of course, I didn't sleep much that night. And uh, we left going to work. We swung by a little store up here Jerry called Jerry Lee, no Wayne Lee's, to get some breakfast. And I couldn't eat. They wouldn't in no way. So we went on to work. Now, when we got back to the shipyard, I noticed it was a lot of cars there. I didn't have any idea how many cars were supposed to be there because this was just my second day at work. So we got our piece of brass and we brassed in and went to our workstations. And there was somebody coming across from the office over there and they wanted to see Charlie and I in the office. So we started going to the office and I got sick on my stomach. I got on my hands and knees out there in the parking lot throwing up. And uh, because I knew there was no good coming out of this, if they called me and Charlie to come into the office, I knew there was a problem somewhere. So we got in the office and the owner of the company come up to us. He said, I don't know what went on with y'all. We cannot conduct business in our office today for the phones ringing off the hook. I said, well, what's wrong? He said, y'all gonna have to give a press release. And I knew right then they knew what was going on. He said, I have an attorney that works for the shipyard. I've called him, Joe Camingo, to come in and uh, work. y'all work with him and get up a press release. And he can turn the press release to the media. And maybe we'll get some of these dang people off her back. I said, all right. Well, Joe came in and he started questioning us. Well, I didn't say nothing. I just told him I didn't know nothing. And I let Charlie do the talking. And that was one mistake that I made in life right there. Because I always felt like in the back of my mind, Charlie might have broke his story. And that's what drove us apart. But anyhow, they worked up a press release where he turned it out. Well, when he come back and talked, he said, I know what went on, so you might as well tell me what's going on. I said, actually, it's none of your business what's going on. This is my business. It's not even Charlie's business what's going on. And uh, I said, I don't have nothing to talk about. I said, but I do have one concern. If I did have something to talk about, I would think that I needed, we need to go to the hospital and get checked for bacterial infections and get checked for radiation. He said, why do you think that? I said, well, we could be poisoning everybody in this office. He said, y'all don't know what went on. I don't know what went on. You know what Charlie's told you went on. I said, I don't want to make nobody sick 
not much more than myself. And that scared them then. They kind of backed off and they said, well, come on, let's go. So by then, the detective had brought us into the, uh, brought us into the uh, sheriff's department that night, was already there because they was coming to help control some of the media. Now, I'm t- you talking about a media flow when you have to have traffic cops directing them out there. It's a bunch of them there. So they, he put us in a patrol car and took us to the Sangin River Hospital in Jackson County. They gave us a physical. They did blood work. They did urine tests. And uh, the doctor said he really couldn't see uh, nothing wrong. I showed him the puncture wound on my arm. He said, that looked like an injection spot. Well, we went through all that, and then I got concerned, you know, again, about the radiation, and I brought that up. But they had already called Kitchener Air Force Base to check us for radiation. Now, actually, that should have been one of the first places we went, but it wasn't. We went to the doctor first because that's what the plan was. So they put us in a car. Keesler was about 30 miles from there. They drove us to Keesler Air Force Base. When we got to the gate, they didn't even slow us down. We went all the way to the back of the base in a uh, warehouse-looking place, and there was men sitting there in hazmat suits. And I don't know, it's not guider counters, but it's something they had in their hand there. And they got us out of the car and they backed everybody off of us and they checked us for radiation. And I sure was relieved when I heard one of them say, all clear. They said, now they want to see you inside. They want to meet you. There's a conference room uh, in the back back there. And we're going to escort y'all back there. I said, oh boy, it's fixing to begin now. So when we got back there, though, they escorted us in, introduced us. They all stood up. Everybody stood up and introduced themselves. They was Air Force officials. They was uh, local officials such as mayors, police chiefs, sheriff deputies from three different counties there. And a lot of brass, you know, military brass. And they pulled us in there and they started... uh, talking and asking us questions. Well, at this point, I was scared not to answer some of the questions. So I tried to briefly mold over them and I would answer just direct questions of what they had to ask. Now, Charlie, he was freewheeling over there. He was letting it flow. And they did that and they was extremely nice. They told us we could go. So we walked out, we got back in the patrol car, and on the way back, we got a call from the shipyard and uh, on the radio, on the sheriff's radio, and I heard him say, well, there's a John Allen Hynek that flew down that wants to meet with these guys and be sure that he sees them. Well, I didn't know who John Allen Hynek was. I had no idea there was even a Project Blue Book that investigated things like that. So we got in and we really didn't have much of a choice because this detective 
took us right in there to see him because if he hadn't, I was going to leave. So he explained who he was and who he used to work for. Him and Dr. Uh, James Harder from the University of California was down. And what amazed me, they came on their own dime. They didn't nobody pay their trip down. They came. And what he was wanting that night was to know the location and the site where all this happened. So Charlie explained to him. I couldn't have told him how to get there for nothing. And he said, I want to talk to y'all. I want to interview y'all in the morning. I know y'all tired, so go get some rest. But please come by here and let me interview you. Well, he was one of the nicest guys I ever met in my life, so I didn't mind going by there because I knew when I wanted to go home, pack my clothes, and when I left him, I was fixing to haul my butt back to Laurel, Mississippi. So we, uh, he, I, I, apparently he went out and checked the site that night and all, and we went on home, tried to get some rest. There wasn't much rest. But I did. I packed everything I had back in my paper bags. And the next morning, we went, we met with uh, Dr. Heineck and Dr. Harder. Well, Dr. Harder gave us a physical examination, and he tried to hypnotize me, but I guess I was too panicky to be hypnotized. So I went in and talked a long time to Dr. Heineck. And I did, I broke down and explained after he said who he was and how he felt. I broke down and explained everything I could to the man, try to help him out. And uh, he left saying that, you know, we seem real credible or some, some word that led in that direction. And if we was uh, faking it, we should have been actors because we're the best actors he's ever seen. That's kind of how we left, honey. Well, I went and got my car, and I went on back to uh, Jones County, Mississippi, back to Laurel. And when I got to Laurel, I knew my family was going to want to hear what was going on, but I never talked to my family about it. They never asked me about it. I never talked to my friends about this up until July of 2018 when the book came out. That is the first time anybody ever heard much come from my mouth. I mean, sometimes the media would catch me and I would tell them just anything to get them off my back because I learned it wouldn't do any good to uh, tell them the story anyhow, it's gonna be changed. So anyhow, but serious interviews I started was just before the book came out. Well, nobody really asked me nothing before the book came out. But right after the book came out, then uh, the deal I had with Philip was, you know, I'll get out and I'll talk about this. I'll make a few conferences. i do a few of these little radio shows and podcasts. And, but the media exploded, and it's been all put in my face. I mean, I've been on Fox News and everything else all the local media is here and a lot of international media, but it don't bother me now to talk about it. It's black and white. They're not going to change what I wrote. And that was the reason for doing the book because I wanted to document 
uh, everything down so they couldn't change it. I could say, well, you're a dang liar because it's in the book and this is what I said. And I know what I said because I wrote the book. So how long do you think the media attention lasted back in 1973? Did it continue through the year into 74? Oh, gosh, it continued ever. Uh, well, i tell you what they would do. Ever October, in the state of Mississippi, they would have a... Uh, have a news update on this and that would just stir them up for about three months in the first of the year. Charlie kept this thing alive. Now, like I say, I quit having much to do with Charlie because I thought he broke this story and we agreed not to. And where I'm from, your word is solid. I mean, I've actually went to banks and borrowed money on my word and went and signed a contract. Now, this ain't lately. But, uh, you know, if you told somebody you was going to do something, you done it. And I felt like Charlie had broke the news, but actually I got to thinking about it. Back used to in the 70s, like I say, it was no cell phones, no social media, hardly anybody. Well, I don't guess nobody I ever known had a computer back then, but the thing about people, they were nosy and they all carried scanners around so they could listen to the um, police department and the fire department. And I really feel like that's the way the news got broke. Now, I didn't know that and I hated it. I should have made amends with Charlie before he died a few years ago. But yeah, I it's been a major media storm for 45 years down here. So the next, was let, actually, me, let me ask you this really quick. The next day at work um, when you were with Charlie, did, did either of you feel traumatized by the event? Was, was there fear that you're feeling or other negative effects from that experience? Yes. It, well, it was a lot of fear involved in it. I was scared to death. Uh, you know, I was just 18, 19 years old. Not real worldly. I spent most of my life behind a mule plowing cotton fields until I went to work in the oil field. But yeah, I was scared and I was scared of changes in my life. One thing when this happened, I was engaged to get married. And you know, when you're young and you got a girlfriend or a fiance and you don't want her family to think bad at you. And I knew her family, her daddy was straight lace. I mean, he was a hard butt. Uh, so the last thing I wanted was for him to find out. And I didn't want none of my family to find out because I didn't want them to worry about me. So, yeah, it was fear involved. Might be fear of different things, but, you know, it was fear. Did you have any fear that uh, that another abduction would occur or another encounter with these beings? Well, you know, back then I never really thought about it because I, I felt when they left, I felt pretty good about it. But uh, at this point in my life, I still didn't know what had happened. Just like at this point in my life, 45 years later, I really don't understand what happened and why it happened. So, no, I never really thought about it being abducted like that again. 
You know, I was I was looking at the the artist depiction and a couple of different drawings made of the creature, and um, you know, abduction stories that you hear now, you hear people talk about how they were fixated on on this alien that was standing there, but most of all, they're fixated on the eyes. Now, the the, the drawings that I've seen, these these beings had no eyes. Um, is that is that correct? Well, now. Uh I didn't, on the robotic looking creatures, you know, no, I don't, I didn't see any facial features whatsoever. Now, the one that I call the female being, and I say she's a female, I don't know if she was or not. I just sense she was. But she had facial features like ears, nose, eyes. And now her eyes was a little smaller than us. I've seen pictures since I started doing this of some big-eyed thing, you know, coming around. But the one that come to see me didn't look like that. She looked more uh, normal than she did alien. Yeah, so, I would I would think to me, you know, um, <laughs> even if, if even if I hadn't had experiences of my own, to me, um, not knowing anything about aliens or UFOs back then, to me, just because they are creatures that could potentially come from who knows where, to me, I would think they wouldn't look like us. And, you know, those those initial robotic type of an organism or whatever that was that you saw definitely weren't human, nor were they humanoid-like. And, and those whatever they had on their head and those carrot-shaped things, I mean, that's something that's had stuck in my brain for, for 40 years, you know, and, and that was one of those things as a kid. I had a vivid picture in my mind, and, and that was a scary thing for me to hear that back then. Yeah, and uh, but I could tell, I could almost 100% sure them three bulky-looking creatures was robotic. Now, this one that came out uh, that was doing the exam on me and all, uh, I felt like it was a she. You know how a man can just sense that a woman's near and a woman can sense that it's a man. And I just had that sense. And it's like I explained to somebody uh, here not too long ago, I said, well, look, look at how many different races we have on this world. And none of them really look just alike at in any way, you know, the different races, but they all basically the same. You know, we all bleed a lot. We talk a lot. I said, now you have some mean people in this world, but you got some really good people too. And, uh, you got some real bad people. So, uh, you know, and that's kind of the way I look at it, you know, just because somebody, might be abducted by a uh, good one, that don't mean all of them's good. It means some of them could be bad or some, most of them can be good, like kind of like a human or, or just curious. Look at the way we would treat somebody uh, a different race and probably have now according to what I hear from like uh, Roswell and places like that. You know, if we caught some of them alive, we'd hide them back and experiment on them. And that's a dang shame right there. Yeah, I'm sure. They, you know, it just seems like like a creature like that uh, 
would wouldn't have any incentive to come to Earth because they could basically, you know, view us as, as something harmful to them. You mentioned that um, you were going to get married at the time, and and I think, in my opinion, that you had every reason in the world then not to tell a story like this, especially because you were getting married and that stigma attached to that kind of experience. Well, back in the 70s, you know, we talked about this before. There was no uh, social media where you could hear about it. Very few people had a TV. I was talking to my mother tonight, and we was watching a, a show where people were standing, a mafia show where people were standing in front of the windows outside the stores looking in at TV trying to get the news and stuff. And that, that's kind of the way it was, or you went to somebody's house that had one. So I really had no way of hearing about anything like this. Now, I never read. Hell, I, I couldn't read too good up until here lately. So still you, you, you continued fishing after that. Did you still go down to the river? Oh, yes, sir. So, I would live on a river right now and fish every night. Right. So did you then, and do you still think about that every time you go fishing? I do. I catch myself sometime going out there at night when it's real clear and I shut the boat down and I lay back in the seat and won't be thinking of nothing or doing nothing. Just look up in the sky and look and see what I can see. And, uh, so I do go out there a good deal. And most of my fishing, I like doing about, well, I work the tide, so it's all different times. But I still go a lot at night because it's cooler. You don't have the sun. You don't have the people on the river like it uh, you would in the daytime or the weekend. So I enjoy the water still. So after the abduction, you and, you and Charlie ran back to the car, and, and that window glass, um, the window was broken, two windows broken in the, in the car. Um, was there window glass everywhere inside the car? Or what, did, what did that look like? Where was, where was most of that glass? Well, uh, until he opened the door, it was stood, stood fast in the frame that it was in. And I had asked somebody about that one time before, and they said, well, that's safety glass. And it's got a little plastic in it. And it does that to keep from cutting you if you had a uh, car wreck. But when it falls out, it don't fall out with sharp edges on it. It just falls in place. So some of it did get in the car because I remember sweeping it up and getting it out, you know, in a few days. Did the experience make your life more difficult or do you think it uh, made it better? How How did it change your life? Well, up until last year, it was a lot more difficult because I didn't want to be around people. I didn't want to talk about it. And the biggest thing, when you're married, you try not to have no secrets from your wife or your family. Well, I never talked about this to my wife and family. And I catch them, my, especially my daughter, wanting to know things. And... I wouldn't talk about it. I just didn't tell nothing about it. So it was a major relief when I did the book. And I wouldn't have to talk about it then. I just handed them a copy of the book, and I said, well, read about it. It's all in there. So uh, 
It helped. Yeah, you could you could just you could just tell them to go to Amazon.com if they want to hear the story. Yeah, <laughs> I mean it's it's the books available there, and and I I know it's on Kindle. And is there an audio book yet for that? Uh I know it's on Kindle. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, it is on audio book because I got a copy uh, emailed to me through a link from uh, Philip, and actually I had uh, started listening to it just to see how somebody from the UK could uh, talk and tell this story. But shoot, he does a great job on it. I mean, the audio book's great. I've enjoyed it myself. Yeah, I'd like to check out the audio book because, um, you know, I'd like to hear. uh, That's got to be amazing for you, though, because um, you're hearing your story told by by somebody who uh, is is a trained... um, audio professional what was that what was that like to hear that the first time it was great i have really enjoyed that uh and what it's let me do sometime at night i put my headphones on and i lean back into bed not sleeping but just listening to that and uh trying to get the full effect uh, of the book to see if there's anything I might have left out or might need to change. And, uh, of course, it is some that was kind of left out and kind of needs changing. So what we're going to do, we're going to not write another book, but do a, uh, I forget what they call it, to this book, like an addition to this book. Right. Sir, this has been an honor and a pleasure because for me, it's been 40 years or more since I first heard your story. And this is another part of this amazing experience I'll always remember. And and after finding out about it so long ago, thank you very much for speaking to America tonight. And thank you very much for being on My Alien Life. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. You can find my website at www.myalienlifepodcast.com and please subscribe to my latest downloads at iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and at podbean.com. And please follow me and like me on Facebook and Twitter. My Alien Life is written and produced for broadcast at Studio 254 in the Northern Rocky Mountains. The music you are hearing is produced and created by Elion. You can find all Elion's work online at Heart Dance Records. (laughs) 